are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, we have a very special guest. He's the author, investigative journalist, and documentarian Greg Pallast. And today, he is going to come and talk to us about Katrina, oil companies, and the disaster that awaits us. Thank you so much for joining us. Did you go down to New Orleans during Katrina? I was there on the anniversary a year later and nothing had been fixed. All It was still completely, utterly destroyed. So, And then I came back before I uh, was an investigative reporter. I was an investigator and one of my main clients was the city of New Orleans. And I also worked for their housing authority as an economic expert. And so I lived part-time in New Orleans uh, for some years, just before the flood. I was deep into the investigations and I did follow-ups also for Channel 4 television later. Channel 4 UK? Yes, Channel 4 UK. And the uh, 2005 investigation was for Democracy Now! Okay, so tell us what was going on about a year later. What I found is that the city was not drowned by Katrina. Katrina went 35 miles wide of the city, never got there. What there was, was a man-made storm surge disaster that drowned 3,000 people. And they knew it beforehand, when I say they, in particular, Ivor Van Heerden, one of the most heroic men I've ever met, Mm -hmm. the deputy director of the Hurricane Center at Louisiana State University, or I should say the late Hurricane Center because they shut it down. Um, Ivor Van Heerden had notified the governor, the White House, FEMA, and every emergency agency that the city was in danger of drowning. In fact, uh, I worked at Channel 4 Television in Britain, and 30 days before the drowning of New Orleans in 2005, Ivor Van Heerden, Dr. Van Heerden, some people call him Dr. Hurricane, said 30 days before the flood, he said, in one month, this city could be underwater. And in one month, exactly, it was underwater. He had warned about it, and no one would take heed. Particularly, he said, uh, there were several problems. Number one, the Army Corps of Engineers, to pleasure the big oil companies, had run a canal, like a shotgun, straight from the Gulf of Mexico right to the edge of the city to the ninth ward of Louisiana so that it would be a quick shot from the Gulf to New Orleans and save the oil companies uh, travel time with their tankers to move uh, from the port of New Orleans out to the Gulf. They wouldn't have to wind around through the Mississippi. What this was, according to the experts, who years before had warned the Army Corps of Engineers that this is a hurricane highway. It's an invitation to the city to take the Gulf of Mexico and push it if there's a storm surge and the wind going in the right direction, which unfortunately it did, or I should say the wrong direction, pushing the water of the Gulf straight through this gun barrel of a canal built for the oil companies and smash into New Orleans. And that's exactly what happened. Oh, okay. So without the canal, the city would not have been flooded. If it not for the Mr. Go Canal. And I'm not just saying because I talked to one expert about it. 
the people of New Orleans and the residents, particularly the Ninth Ward, where there were the most drownings, the a poor black community, but of homeowners who all lost their homes, I mean, all lost their homes to this day, they sued in federal court. And a federal judge ruled that indeed the city and the Ninth Ward would not have drowned except for the Mr. Go Canal, that is the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, as they called it, Mr. Go. And that the Army Corps of Engineers was warned in writing, in calls. That was not the only warning, okay? Besides, you could have Mr. Go if you then protected the city from the shotgun canal, the hurricane highway they created, by strengthening and lengthening and deepening the levee walls. They were 18 inches short, according to the modeling done at the Hurricane Center at LSU. Ivor Van Heerden, Dr. Van Heerden, contacted the White House. I want to repeat that. He contacted George Bush's White House and spoke to the council, to the president, even saying, we have an emergency. You better get the Army Corps of Engineers down here because any day we have a storm and we don't need a hurricane, just a storm. Because remember, as Von Hurden said, this is, we didn't have a hurricane hit New Orleans. We had a, a storm surge. The hurricane didn't hit. He said, this is going to topple over. Those levees are going to topple over. That's exactly what they did. But the Army Corps of Engineers, after creating this disaster, Mr. Go, the Army Corps of Engineers was busy in a place called Iraq. You know, so the Army Corps couldn't save the city of New Orleans from drowning because it was busy rebuilding uh, the bridges that they were destroying in Iraq. So White House was warned in advance. Everyone was warned in advance. I said, like Dr. Van Heerden was on a month on TV saying, we're going to drown. We're going to drown. Next big storm, we're done. By the way, if you feel that things are cool now, I've spoken to Dr. Van Heerden recently. I said, so how is it now? He says, it's worse than it ever was. If there's another storm surge, you're gone. This city is gone again. And it, by the way, I don't think people understand how serious the 2005 storm was. Besides 3,000 people drowning and 700 Several, we don't know how many shot dead. We'll go to that in a minute. Mm But 80% of the houses, 80%, I don't think people realize it wasn't a part of the city, 80% of the housing was destroyed. And then there was another warning. And this is the final thing from Van Heerden. And I keep mentioning this very heroic man for good reason. When I came to him originally for Democracy Now! and later for Channel 4 Television, he told me, one other thing that he said is going to get him fired. Two other things. Number one, there was no evacuation plan for New Orleans. Can you imagine? Now, I, just so you know, I actually worked on a hurricane evacuation plan in, in my varied life. If you think of Greg Palace as an investigative reporter, but I uh, did a lot of other, uh, I, I actually used to work for a living <laughs> as mm-hmm. an expert. And one of the things I worked on was a hurricane evacuation plan for Long Island, New York. Now, Long Island, New York, is the richest metropolitan statistical area in America. Mm-hmm. New Orleans is one of the poorest. There was a six-volume hurricane evacuation plan for Long Island. They've had hurricanes and no one dies. New Orleans hired a company called Innovative Emergency Management. Uh, what? Big donors to the Republican Party who were hired to do an evacuation plan. Instead of the six volumes we had in Long Island, We had two pages, two pages, that's it, that no one could find by this group, Innovative Emergency Management. Now, how did they get their contract? 
Well, besides a lot of donations to the Republican Party, they claimed, they claimed that their team would be headed by James Lee Witt. Now, those in the emergency evacuation business know that James Lee Witt is a legend. He was former head of FEMA, and he knows, he's, he knows how to save you from a hurricane. So they said he was going to be in charge of the team. I talked to Mr. James Lee Witt, who said, they called me once, and I never heard back from them. They just used his name on a press release, and they used his name to, to get the contract. So New Orleans literally had no evacuation plan. When I called FEMA, I was watching the evacuation before the city drowned when they called for the evacuation, and I'm seeing cars backed up for miles, and yet half the highway is empty because you're not allowed to go in, only out. Now, you're supposed to reverse lanes so people can get out. And I said, so what, how come the plan doesn't have a lane reversal? Can you explain what lane reversal is? Okay, so in other words, lane reversal, it's not rocket science to get people out alive in front of a storm. When I was working on it for this Long Island, you take a 12-lane uh, highway like you have going out of New Orleans. Six lanes are going out. That ain't enough for everyone getting in their car panicked and going. So you take the, si the six lanes going into the city, which have to be closed. You can't have anyone going in except uh, one lane for emergency vehicles. And you take those five other lanes. So now you have 11 lanes leaving the city and you can double, nearly double the amount of people leaving alive. Now, they didn't have that because there was no plan. And by the way, when I asked FEMA for the plan, I'm watching this mayhem before the storm. And I'm expert in this. And I, so I called FEMA. I said, where's the, where's the evacuation plan? And they told me, because they became part of Homeland Security, that the evacuation plan was a national security secret. And what? they couldn't give it to me. That's so ridiculous. So now I said, I said <laughs> you may find that ridiculous. I said, so, I mean, we're laughing, but people drown because of it. So I said, listen, how can it be a secret? The police department has to know. The fire department has to know. The bus company has <laughs> to know. You've got to get people out. And here's the problem. When I finally found the, the little plan, and I went to the offices of the company that was paid to do it a half million dollars called Innovative Emergency Management. I went to their offices, and they tried to hide from me. They were literally hiding under their desks, and I, I'm not exaggerating when I went there with my camera. Finally, they came out. And I said, where's the plan? Oh, it's somewhere. What do you mean it's somewhere? You're paid half a million dollars for an emergency evacuation plan. If it's secret, how can anyone actually act on it? So I finally got their plan. I guess they pulled it out of the water. And it was basically, here's our plan for half a million bucks. If there's a hurricane coming, get in your car and drive like hell. Now, the problem is 127,000 people in the New Orleans area don't have cars, don't have a way out. Now, they knew this. Obviously, uh, that, that's not rocket science. Again, you're going to not have everyone with cars, so you have to have bus systems, and you have to go find people who are disabled, and you have lists of those. You have lists of nursing homes. You have lists of hospitals. People, people died in hospitals, just so you know, because they couldn't get them out, okay? And they lost electricity and respirators and the rest. People died in hospitals, not just drowned. And I went to LSU again, the hurricane center, and Ivor Van Heerden, and he said, yep, we'd actually developed an emergency evacuation plan for free. I want to repeat that. LSU had developed an emergency evacuation plan, he said, which also said where the pipelines were because you don't want them exploding. You have to turn them off. We knew where the nursing homes were. We knew where to stage the buses. 
we knew where the, which way the water would be moving because we had modeled it. But the state turned down the free plan from their own hurricane center in favor of this Republican-connected firm of phonies and con men. And I say that in con women because it was headed by a woman. And I, I say that advisedly because I don't like to get sued for libel. But these are the guys who said that uh, their team would be headed by the top hurricane evacuation expert in the country who said he had nothing to do with it. So you have to understand, this is a man-made disaster. Don't blame Katrina. Katrina did not drown the city of New Orleans. And I have to tell you that Ivor Van Heerden was threatened. He was fired by Louisiana State. Uh, but because he had her tenure, they did it in an extraordinary manner. They couldn't fire a tenured professor, so they simply shut the entire hurricane center. Now think about that. The state of Louisiana shut down its hurricane center and replaced it, by the way, with a different operation with called um, its wetlands center, which was funded. So Van Heerden was tossed out. Uh, by the way, he later... He did something that was quite extraordinary, one of the only cases ever in which the American Association of, of University Professors ordered the university to rehire him and pay him his back pay, one of the only cases in which that's ever been done, that it was clear that he was fired for political reasons. And who was behind the firing? Not just the politicians that didn't like him saying, I warned you and you did nothing. There was another group. Who? Oh. America Wetlands, and they, when the they were giving 300000 to the university, LSU, to close the hurricane center and open a wetland center. Now, you think, well, wetlands are very important, but who's behind American wetlands? I went through the material. I went to American's wetlands. I saw their filings there with the IRS, and 100% of their money came from Chevron Oil. This is an oil company front. And while I was in, working with Channel 4, television later, I confronted the head of America's wetlands, mm -hmm. which had captured the entire discussion about how you save New Orleans. And it's all about protecting our energy security. In other words, keep the oil drilling going. Because one of the other things that Ivor Von Heerden said, and this is very important, Dr. Von Heerden, Dr. Hurricane said, Mr. Go, the bad levees, all that stuff, all that stuff still wouldn't have killed everyone if it weren't for the oil industry. Wow. And what he said was, people, you know, people knock the people of New Orleans, especially the black people, say, well, why are they living in a city below sea level next to the Gulf of Mexico? Obviously, it's going to flood. The answer is that the Gulf of Mexico used to be quite far away from the city of New Orleans, you know, a good hundred miles away from the city of New Orleans. The problem is, the Gulf of Mexico has been marching a quarter mile a year towards New Orleans for a century. And what's happened is those wonderful blue bayous that you see if you fly over New Orleans and that, and that uh, Linda Rodenstadt sang about, mm -hmm. most of those blue bayous are not natural. They were created by oil company drilling rigs dragged through what used to be America's cattle ranching center. Did you know that most no. of America's cattle came from the Mississippi Delta? It was prairie marsh. It was this very rich prairie. And they just slashed through it with oil rigs and pipelines and uh, oil equipment and, and trawlers. And 70% of the damage 
of the loss of the wetlands. And we're talking most of the wetlands of the Mississippi Delta have been destroyed. And 70% was caused by the oil industry and its operations. 70% of the Mississippi Delta loss. Wow. And that brought the Gulf right up to the city. It used to have like 100 miles of mangrove. And as Von Heerden, uh, Dr. Von Heerden told me, he said, you know, a mile, one mile thickness of, um, a 10 mile thickness of mangrove trees, cypress mangroves, will cut a storm surge by six feet. Uh, why is that? Because it's like a bunch of needles. Think of if you had a, a you know, imagine if you had a, a you know, like a, a, think of a lake. What if you had a whole bunch of trees in the middle of that lake that filled up that lake? It would be hard for a big surge to move through, just dissipate through the, oh, through yeah. the, 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 the trees. Okay. So it lacked like a physical barrier from the water. It's literally get- a physical barrier. That, right. So they had this long, giant, miles and miles of physical barrier, which is down to three miles right now outside the city of New Orleans. The quote from Von Heerden is that he said, you know, Katrina would have been a storm of no note, a storm of no note if it hadn't been for the massive loss of the Cypress Grove protection caused by the oil industry. You add in that Mr. Go shotgun canal from the Gulf right to the city. You add in bad levees. And here's one other thing, and, and I could answer more questions, but that I really have to get out from Von Heerden because again, this man is heroic and I feel bad because I got, he lost his job because I reported his story and his warnings before the, the hurricane, although he got it back later by fighting. He was the main advisor, of course, LSU Hurricane Center, main advisor to the governor of Louisiana at the time, who was a Democrat. She just passed away this week, by the way. Mm-hmm. And he was with the governor. They later found out that the Army Corps of Engineers had that night seen breaches in the levees and knew at 11 p.m. on Monday night, that night right after the flood hit the city, that the levees were beginning to breach and fold in. Now, you have to understand, and then they did not tell the governor. They did not tell the hurricane center. Why not? Well... You know, the thing is, is that they created this disaster and um, it's not clear. Part of it was, again, that, you know, they had politicians running this. The White House, FEMA had become, remember, uh, George Bush uh, had put in his political hack. He got rid of James Lee Witt, the great expert on evacuation, replaced him with that guy, Brown, that he called Brownie. Remember, attaboy, Brownie, good boy, Brownie, way to go, Brownie. Again, I, I want to thank you all for, and Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The FEMA director's working 24 So he put in this political hack who didn't know anything about emergency evacuation. They hired political hacks to do the evacuation. They didn't know what to do. They were unprepared. So, and they were communication, well, I can't use the term on the air, but it was a cluster. And they didn't tell the governor that the levees were breaching. Now, why is this important? They knew that not everyone had gotten out of the city, that there were still thousands of people who didn't have cars who couldn't get out of the city or hadn't. And they stopped the evacuation of New Orleans because the storm had gone out 35 miles away from the city. So they said, okay, we have to turn our attention to other areas. But they didn't know the levees were breaching. So when the levees broke, you had just this crushing wall of water. And I walked through with a former city councilman, Broad Baggert, 
who lost his own home. I'm standing in the ruins of his own home. He's going down the street and looking at his neighbors and there's these X's on the walls. And you'll see a five at the top and a three and a two and different numbers. And the numbers at the top were the number of corpses found in the houses and then the number of pets. <laughs> you know, like, and then the day that they were found, you know, like day 16 uh, that they were found or whatever. And, you know, this is negligence and cruelty. And, and I got to tell you, it wouldn't have happened if, if the storm surge were in West Hampton or Palm Beach. It's a black city and they let it drown. Right now, we do have the best democracy money can buy. So for people with a lot of money, you get the good corporate PR machine. But if you want the truth, please subscribe to independent podcasts and news channels like us. Go to historically.com to become a subscriber. It's only $5 a month. In addition to the podcasts, you get amazing newsletters at least once a week and sometimes more than once a week. Please just subscribe. Thank you. So you also mentioned that they brought in Blackwater later. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? Well, what happened is you had people who were trapped in the city in the flood and had to eat. And this is very interesting. TV stations, when they saw white people going to stores to get food or water for their kids, getting, you know, going through the storm, just getting into a store and just trying to get something off the shelves, they were trying to save their families. Black people shown on TV trying to get something for their families. They were, quote, looters. And the governor called for uh, shooting looters on site. I remember that. Now, uh, you have to understand, we don't know how many. And some counts put it at well over 100. People were gunned down. Not, but, well, first of all, uh, there were some police who stopped black people from crossing a bridge yep. to escape. Those black folk were gunned down by New Orleans police. They were black people trying to escape, literally gunned down. And by the way, I will say, I guess you could call this the, the uh, there is some justice in this world. Those four policemen who simply gunned down black people for trying to cross to safety, they were convicted of murder. And that's, but the thing is, if they were the only bad apples, killers, that would be one thing. But there were white people who were standing on the bridges and they were shooting at black people and killing some. And some got convicted. Most didn't. There's a lot of black bodies still unaccounted for in that city. And so you had actually, basically, they, they trapped people there. And one guy, and by the way, if you want to see some of these stories and you want to meet the people, and you want to meet Dr. Von Heerden, you want to meet Broad Baggert in his home, where, which was destroyed. If you want to meet Patricia Thomas, someone we should talk about who was locked out of, out of her home, a black woman, who was, uh, whose home was taken away under the guise of hurricane rebuilding, et cetera. If you want to meet these people and meet the victims and the heroes, watch the film Big Easy to Big Empty, which I'm offering for free at my site, gregpalast.com. It's a half-hour film, which I did uh, for um, Democracy Now! originally. And um, there's also, if you go to YouTube and just type in Greg Palast, New Orleans, Democracy Now!, 
Uh, you'll see a 16-minute version, which has these people in it. And you want to meet these people, including one Stephen Smith. He didn't know how to swim. He got out of his house and he saw people sitting on roofs about to, they were going to drown because the water kept rising above the roofs. Mm. In the Ninth Ward. So he took a mattress. You know, he didn't know how to swim. He had it, saw that there's this mattress that was floating. And so he got on the mattress and he went rooftop to rooftop gathering people. And he got a, a couple families to overpass, to a highway overpass in New Orleans. And so brought them, he thought, to safety. They stayed on that bridge for three days with the helicopters. You know, President George Bush came in to, to have a big event about how he saved the city. And the helicopters were flying over them. And no one stopped to rescue them for three days. They had no water. And there was, a, there was one family. With, there was a little baby. And the grandfather in the family had a bottle of clean water and gave it to, to uh, the baby and, and his grandchildren. And then he died of dehydration waiting three days on that bridge. My God. Died of dehydration on that bridge. Three nights here and one night on the bridge. So You were three nights stuck in the flood? Right here. Yeah. And they weren't looking for you? We had helicopters, but they, nothing didn't pass, and at least they passed over us. I'm on a roof holding my shirt out and saying that we had babies back here. And that story is repeated again and again and again. And this is the real story of the drowning of the city of New Orleans that you don't get, you know, on the petroleum broadcast system. You said there was also like some kind of shenanigans that happened during Katrina for the Republicans to kind of mess with the electorate. Well, yeah, let's put it this way. As you know, you had uh, New Orleans and uh, the state of Louisiana was a purple state. You had a Democratic governor. Mm -hmm. You had a Democratic city, uh, a black city, uh, New Orleans, with a black mayor. Mm -hmm. And in the, so in the Deep South, you had this last pocket of, of Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so basically you had ethnic cleansing of the voter rolls by having ethnic cleansing of New Orleans. Because one thing that most people don't realize most of the people in New Orleans that were washed out, most of the black people of New Orleans, I should say, most of the black people of New Orleans who were washed out never came back. Uh, so when they say the city is recovered, for whom has it recovered? The rich white folk did very well. The real estate brokers made millions and killings. The contractors made a fortune. But the people, for example, the Ninth Ward was a place of black home ownership. But these people have had their homes for 50, 60, 80 years, these shotgun shacks of the Ninth Ward. They didn't have insurance. A lot of them didn't even have filed deeds. They lost everything, and they got nothing, even though, by the way, a court had ruled that the federal government was responsible for this disaster and for these people losing their homes but no court can order the federal government to make a payment without an authorization from Congress. Mm. Well, what happened is these people couldn't come back and they were given these FEMA trailers out in swamps near Baton Rouge. Some people were sent to Texas. If you remember the wonderful Barbara Bush, mm -hmm. who is, uh, you know, resting on the devil's knee right now. Um, Barbara Bush, you know, went into the Astrodome where, where people were sent by new, by the way, they didn't know they were going to the Astrodome. They put survivors on the buses, 
black people. And they had them ride all the way from New Orleans to Houston. And they didn't tell them where they were going. They didn't tell them when they would stop. They were just starving these people on this bus and then dumped them in the Astrodome with nothing. And Barbara Bush went in there and said, oh, these people are living large. This is better living than they had in uh, New Orleans. Holy God. What I'm hearing, which is sort of scary, is they all want to stay in Texas. Everybody is so overwhelmed by the hospitality. And so many of the people in the arenas here, you know, were, were underprivileged anyway. This is it's working very well for them. Um, a wonderful woman. Because uh, I, I mentioned that because she, you know, when she passed away, you know, there were all these wonderful accolades about what a wonderful lady she was. I mean, she was probably our, you know, geez, until, until Trump, I guess she was one of the great racists in the White House. And anyway, but the, um, and I use that term advisedly. When you make that comment about black people, are you a racist or not? I think Absolutely. you are. So I come back and in a year later and after the flood, and I'm filming, and there's a woman crying at a community meeting. I, and I went over to her, why are you crying? And you'll see this on camera. She's sobbing. She says, oh, no, they, they're doing me wrong. I don't know what to do. I got kids. I don't know what to do. Well, what, what, what can't you do? We're standing in front of what are the Lafitte homes. These are, this is public housing in New Orleans. Now, what's amazing about the Lafitte homes, when we think of public housing, we think of these giant brick buildings in kind of bad conditions. And not the Lafitte homes. There were a couple of housing projects in New Orleans that were gorgeous little townhouses. Mm -hmm. and, and these gorgeous townhouses were actually lifted up about four feet on concrete bases. And they were on the high ground near the French Quarter. So the Lafitte homes were never touched by Katrina. That is, the water came in but never entered the homes. So they were some of the only housing saved, and it's beautiful housing. So what was going on here? The city of New Orleans, the housing authority of New Orleans, had always wanted to get rid of the black people in those houses and sell that property to developers. Oh. And because it was right next to the French Quarter, between the French Quarter and downtown. So they locked when the people were ordered to evacuate and they put them on these mystery buses and sent them to Houston. Um, they said, and then a year later, this was the anniversary. This woman's coming back at one year later. Her house has not had a drop of water in it. They won't let her into her own house. And by the way, that means that includes things like your family photos and stuff. You know, you had to get out, mm -hmm. right? So all your personal belongings, your mementos, everything you own, your clothes, your shoes, you know, your high school diploma, Everything is in that place. They won't let her in. And she's got kids with her. She says, where am I going to sleep tonight? They won't let me in my own home. They said they'd arrest me if I break in. So then the next day, I said, we're going to break in with the cameras on. <laughs> we're going to break in. The next day, I her cousin, who also had a place there, Patricia Thomas, we just broke in. Say, okay, let them arrest us with the cameras rolling. So we break into her house. They, they'd put, when I say break in, they'd put metal seals across the door, metal seals across the window. We, we ripped off the metal seals and we broke our way into her own house. Mm -hmm. And the cereal was dry. Everything was, it looked like someone just left for the afternoon. It wasn't the house, 80% of the house I went into had mud were destroyed by Katrina. As my uh, as city councilman Broad Baggert said, who's also one of the city's best known poets, he said it's like a monster went rampaging through here, but not at the Lafitte homes. They were perfect. 
Katrina didn't do this. Maine did this. Katrina didn't come in my house and put these gates up on my, my, my windows and things. Katrina didn't have me walking out here looking for somewhere to stay. Maine did this. This was man me. But they didn't want those people back. Because they want to gentrify it and make it... Uh... They did. They, they sold off those houses. They smashed half of them down. They sold off the other half. They said, oh, there... And this was the only livable place. So those black people could not return. They never returned. Stephen Smith, the guy who had saved those people and put them on a bridge, he was sent to Texas. His wife and, and kid were sent to Baton Rouge. They didn't know where each of them was sent. They had no way to communicate with each other, right? Yeah. It's not like they had cell phones going. Uh, they had to leave. You know, everything was lost in the water. They couldn't communicate. There was no tracking system, by the way. Like, oh, we sent Stephen to uh, Houston. They just put dumped people on buses. They didn't know who or what. And by the way, he lost his job at the Marriott Hotels. He was working a nice union job at the Marriott Hotels. And like a lot of people there... Um, they were replaced by Central Americans, mostly Salvadorans and Guatemalans, who came up to do the reconstruction work. They didn't hire the people of New Orleans to do that for a good reason, in that you're working with dangerous black lichen that will kill you when it gets into your lungs. So you have to wear hazmat suits. You have to do special operations. This is toxic stuff. But, you know, Central Americans are expendable. You get a guy from Salvador. He's there legally or illegally, and uh, he's not going to complain. And you're going to pay him less than minimum wage. And sometimes they'd work all day and, not, and the guy, the, the boss would disappear and they wouldn't get paid at all. Oh and they're boy. sucking that, that uh, black lichen. They're sloshing through this putrid water and with no equipment and no protection. And so they are the ones that replaced a lot of the black folk in the city. So you have a different city now. It's white. The white population pretty much uh, stayed there or came back because they had the nicer, higher property. Not all of them, by the way, just so you know. I mean, there's some very wealthy areas that were completely destroyed. But they had the money to return and rebuild. Uh, the black folk did not. So you don't have, most of the black folk that were washed out didn't return. And the Republicans, by the way, loved it. It was ethnic cleansing, and it turned the state from um, kind of Democratic, mostly Democratic, to mostly Republican. Uh, some of that is beginning to reverse again. But basically, for the Republicans, it was wonderful. It uh, locked in Republican control of Louisiana the South. And uh, uh, I guess you can edit this out. But as I once said, uh, Dick Cheney had no problem with that. He's one of the only men who prefers a hurricane to a blowjob. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, I have to tell you, so you, you see this, it's been a con job about a, the whole and, and understand who's also behind this. It's not just a matter of Republicans. It's about big oil. Again, the oil industry destroyed the protections against the hurricanes. And you've got to restore the wetlands. So they just got a step ahead. And the oil companies created this group called America's Wetlands. Mm -hmm. And if you read my book, Vulture's Picnic, I have a chapter called the Kunas Riviera. Mm -hmm. about my investigations for Channel 4 television. And in that investigation, I was told the guy to look out for, the center of the oil operations, is a guy named R. King Milling. Mm -hmm. And as Rod Baggert, the ex-councilman, told me, you have to understand one thing about Milling. He is the Rex. 
Now, I know when you think of New Orleans, you think of throwing beads and Mardi Gras and, and people getting drunk and having fun. But actually, those Mardi Gras crews are very important political and social organizations. Mm -hmm. They are basically the, and two of them, uh, Comus and Rex, are really the kind of secret societies of the white elite. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Rex, the king of Mardi Gras, was our king Milling. He was the Rex of Rex. Mm -hmm. And now, so you get a little of, the, of how Gree Gree operates. It's the political voodoo of the city. Mm -hmm. So he is the main uh, attorney for the oil companies like Chevron oh. and Exxon, chairman of the biggest bank, mm -hmm. head of the, uh, of, uh, of the Rex Society, and his wife, of course, is queen of, the, queen of Mardi Gras. And she was also head of something called Women of the Storm. These are the people, you know, kind of the, the rich white women that came out of their plantation houses to wipe the brows of the poor black folk who were drowning. And uh, what they were doing was collecting money and funds and political support to protect our wetlands, come up with a plan to protect the wetlands. And they even got Sandra Bullock to do a commercial, mm -hmm. uh, a public relation, you know, one of those, you know, PR things like help the women of the storm rebuild our ravaged coastline. Well, women of the storm is another front for Chevron oil and our King Milling. <laughs> and so their plan to save the wetlands was to have more drilling of oil in the wetlands. And again, our, our hero, Ivor Van Heerden, you know, again, put his job on the line saying it's the oil companies that have endangered New Orleans, that will kill New Orleans, that are destroying the wetlands. And any plan which increases or even allows oil drilling to continue in this sensitive area is guaranteeing more floods, more storm more destruction. But remember, they're not always sad about this, just so you know. I mean, in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, and again, this is in Vulture's Picnic, I went back, the uh, state of Mississippi was given about $600 million for rebuilding along coast. And the, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, and also Alabama, Georgia, Mobile, this was an area where you had a lot of black fishermen, with small fishing boats who then had little kind of restaurants like these fry, fish fry shacks along the, the highway. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they simply, those people were wiped out in the, of course, by Katrina and the storm surges. But instead of rebuilding the properties owned by black folk and giving them their fishing boats back, you know, like helping them uh, recover their lives. Instead, the property was seized by the state and turned over to casinos. Oh, so wow. now, instead of black fishing, uh, you know, the kind of black fishing villages and, and the fry shacks, you now have these monster casinos. And that's where the so-called recovery money went to in Mississippi. And that's, that's the game that's being played. So there, again, and that was engineered by GOP operatives you know, and by the way, the Democrats are in on these games. Uh, of course. I'm not being partisan about this, but it happens to be that it, it's to the advantage of the Republicans down there. They had the control, so they kept the money. And the last thing they were going to do is give a place for black people to live. So you send them to, you have to understand, people, black folk were sent as far away as, um, as New York City. I actually remember when I was on a train in D.C., 
Um, I met this guy who was black and who's from New Orleans, and he said, yeah, they relocated us all the way to D.C. And I was like, wow, yeah. And so you get electorally, there, these people were concentrated and held Louisiana as a Democratic state. Suddenly they're drowned. They're drowned in Texas among uh, Republicans where their vote gets lost or they're sent to D.C. where it's all black and their vote gets lost again. Basically, they drained the state of black folk. Like they say, oh, most of the population of New Orleans is now recovered and it's a booming city. Well, booming for whom? Not the original people who live there. That is part of the great, great tragedy. I, I met, and then, you know, um, later, of course, you had on top of that, the explosion of Deepwater Horizon, another investigation. The, the British Petroleum, yeah. What did you discover about that? Well, that was, an, and, and by the way, there, there's a bit of relation about how we deal. Remember, it's the oil companies that destroyed ultimately destroyed New Orleans. They are the ultimate predators that attacked that city, not Katrina. Mm -hmm. In the case of the Deepwater Horizon, which its 10th anniversary will be April 20th, 2020, I discovered, I got a call from the Caspian Sea in Asia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Greg Palace, I have, I have tentacles out, you know, I have listeners all over the planet. And when the Deepwater Horizon blew up, they said, oh, my God, who could have ever figured this would happen? Remember Barack Obama? Remember him? He was the president. He uh, said, there's never been an oil well. All the oil well problems are from tankers or, or oil destruction in the water, never from oil rigs. Uh -huh. When he was approving oil rigs, when he approved the Deepwater Horizon drilling uh -huh. um, in the first place, uh, he said, there's no problem here. What I found out is that 17 months before the Deepwater Horizon blew out, mm -hmm. there was an identical blowout by another BP transocean rig. It was a transocean rig in the Gulf too. Another BP transocean rig blew out in the Caspian Sea. Oh, in Az near Azerbaijan? Near a Azerbaijan off Baku. Okay. And... and um, I actually flew there. I flew to Baku. I flew to Azerbaijan to confirm this, that and it was covered up by the Azeri government. You know, you have kind of, that's, uh, you know, the called Islamic yeah. Republic. Yeah, um, it was, uh, I called the, the Islamic Republic of BP. I was arrested there, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, for this investigation of BP. But then actually BP got me out. They realized that having a reporter who works for BBC and Channel 4 and The Guardian is not, arresting, uh, arresting me is not a good idea. But of course, they create tremendous fear there about getting this story out. So our sources, some of them disappeared, some of them were beaten up. Uh, it was pretty terrifying, the whole thing. But these, the oil companies never told the US government that they had this blowout in the Caspian Sea because this happened just before they approved the drilling for the deep water horizon. But you think with all that spying and national security intelligence, the U.S. government could have figured it out anyways, but... Oh, here's the bad news for you. The U.S. government not only figured it out, we found out through the WikiLeaks documents. And so thank you, uh, Chelsea Manning, uh -huh. for releasing those documents. We found out that the... Bush State Department, run by Condoleezza Rice, had been given notice of the blowout in the Caspian Sea. And they never told the Interior Department, we had this blowout and you're going to have another one uh, 
with they had the same cause, by the way. The quick dry cement blew out in both cases. And the State Department was run by Condoleezza Rice. Mm-hmm. Condoleezza Rice was not only Secretary of State, she was a VLCC, a very large crude carrier. Uh, Chevron had named one of its tankers the Condoleezza because she was on their board. And then they still had the tanker. Then they had to change the tanker's name when people started saying, well, you've got a Secretary of State who's also an oil tanker. But they may have changed the name, but they didn't, that didn't reduce their influence. Mm-hmm. So she covered up. So Condoleezza Rice covered up the fact, and, her, and the State Department covered up the fact they knew about the, the blowout in the, in the Gulf. Now, understand what's happening here. Put these two events together with the oil companies. Now, uh, by the way, so not only because it was a BP rig, but just so you know, Chevron and Exxon were the junior partners in the ownership of the Caspian Sea rig. All three of those companies' executives knew about that blowout. And those company executives, Chevron, Exxon, and BP's executive, a guy named Rayner, went before Congress and said, we've never, this is just before the Deepwater Horizon blew out. They said, we've never had a problem in the Gulf in 50 years. We don't have any problems with deep water drilling. And they knew that they just had a blowout in the Caspian. They lied to Congress. So getting back to the Gulf, I then go, I'm going from, I literally flew from Azerbaijan back to the Gulf of Mexico. And you see where these, where the two disasters come together, both man-made. I go out with a professor, Rick Steiner, who is head of, uh, of studies of uh, oil spills. He was chairman of the biology department at uh, the University of Alaska until the oil companies got him fired. And he took me out to the oiled sites of the Deepwater Horizon six months after the blowout. Mm-hmm. And they still had 600 miles of oil all over the place. And I, so we stop and it looks like a, a chain gang <laughs> I have a little film, Vultures and Vote Rustlers, where I was part of my film for uh, Channel 4 television in Britain. And we pull up, and it's like all these black people in a line. It's like, and you think it's a chain gang, but it's actually guys who've been hired by BP to clean up for the spill. And they had these little, and I kid you not, they had kitty litter pooper scoopers on the end of sticks. And they were skimming the soil and pulling off the little pieces of oil that had coagulated on the beach. By hand. <laughs> By hand. Well, yeah, they're not supposed to touch you with your hand. That was the other thing. By the way, all those volunteers who went out and started picking up oil with their hands, uh-huh. I don't know how many are going to end up with cancer. But I can tell you this. These guys are out there, and they were out there without respirators. Now, I was involved also in the investigation I'm not as a reporter, but I was one of the investigators on the Exxon Valdez spill in 89. And the native uh, Alaskans had a, who did the, most of the cleanup of the spill, they knew you don't go out, you don't get near oil without full hazmat suits and respirators. That crap will kill you. And here were these people without anything. They got gloves and baggies over their shoes, and they're picking up oil. And But with pooper scoopers. And I say, why are you doing this with the pooper scooper? And they're saying, well... They told us that if we, you know, we can't dig, we'll lose our job. We can only take the top quarter inch of soil and, and because that's the surface. And I asked Professor Steiner, who was with me, I said, well, what is this? And he said, come over here. He walked where their, super, their white supervisors, right? It's black men picking up this crud, black men and black women. And you got these white supervisors sitting in a tent uh, sucking on their, uh, on their Coca-Colas. 
and we go out where the supervisor can't see us and he digs down, Professor Steiner digs down about eight, nine inches and there's this whole layer of oozing oil. Oh. And he says, see, they're not allowed to dig down. So we asked Raphael Gill, this workman, so why aren't you digging down and getting the oil? He says, because we'll get fired. And, and what Steiner said to me is, this is clean up theater, clean up theater. Now, Gill had lost his uh, home and his work in the fishing village in the Gulf with Katrina. He's stuck getting a, uh, uh, you know, some second-rate job at the casinos when they move in, finally recovers. And then because of the oil spill, the, there's no one going to these casinos. I mean, not many people want to go to beaches that are covered with crude, right? Yeah. And so now the casinos are going broke. And so they fire all their workers. Now Gil is living, starts living in his car with his son. Okay, oh like that? And he gets hired by BP to do this cleanup at 14 bucks an hour, which is interesting because, you know, almost two decades before, BP was in charge of the oil spill cleanup at the, of the Exxon spill. BP was paying $26 an hour to the natives. They knew how to bargain. But black people 20 years later are getting 14 bucks an hour and no hazmat suits, nothing. And so this is uh, welcome to America. So these two things go together because you had the one-two punch to the low-income and black communities of, uh, of the Gulf Coast. So I'm going to ask you to imagine like a future with um, a lot more climate change disasters. Is there still a rig that is not stable that could like, I don't know. Lots of them. Okay. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's happened, okay, Keep in mind that the that the Deepwater Horizon was was your um, state of the art rig, right? And and Azerbaijan, while the, the Russians had terrible, filthy rigs, you know you had BP and Chevron, these others coming with new equipment. The problem is is that uh, they'll they'll play games with safety uh, because, for example, in the case of the of the Deepwater Horizon. They use quick dry cement. That is night. In other words, you, you know the phrase watching cement dry. Yeah. It takes a long time. So you can speed it up by kind of blowing a bunch of a nitrous oxide, laughing gas into it. It speeds up the drying. But like if you have a milkshake and you, you know, and you, um, uh, you know, blow bubbles into it, it could create channels. And that's what happens. It just, instead of just making the cement dry quicker and, and making this emulsion dry, it starts bubbling up and that has, that means the methane gas starts, can start blowing up through in into the rig. And that's how you had the blowout in both Azerbaijan and in, um, in the Gulf. Interestingly, uh, Exxon and Chevron stopped using the quick dry cement after they got the word from Azerbaijan, this crap blows out. BP didn't. Now, Exxon and Chevron and BP are required by international law, by U.S. law, and by their insurers to make public when there's a blowout and there's a problem so it could be analyzed for just this reason. But they didn't. They kept it to themselves. So Exxon said, we're not going to use that stuff because we don't want to lose a rig. BP just decided to roll the dice again. So this is going to be happening again because one thing I found with the oil industry in my years of investigation, including uh, I, was direct, I directed the investigation of racketeering and fraud in the Exxon Valdez breakup, you know, it's very dangerous to stand between an oil company and its money. 
they're not in the business of producing oil, they're in the business of making money. And the way you make money is that you produce the oil in the cheapest possible way you can. And if you have a spill or, you know, blow out sometimes, it's just better to pay, make the payment than it is than to pay the money up front. And same with, and, and this is what happens, you know, like there is no protection. The oil companies don't care about destroying the wetlands around New Orleans and, and that whole wetland area. Right now, we're all having, everyone's going crazy about uh, the new right-wing leader of uh, Brazil burning down the Amazon rainforest. Mm -hmm. But we have, we continue to destroy the wetlands on the Gulf Coast. And that's also, you know, when they talk about the, you know, the, the planet's lungs, that's, that's America's lungs there. That's taking the crap, you know, the, we need those marshes, not only to protect the cities, but also to, you know, to uh, allow our, the air to somehow recover and the waters to somehow recover. But they are continuing piping, drilling, destroying the Gulf and the wetlands there. So, and of course, as seas rise, you know, it's a, it's a terrible loop. You know, you do these destructive things, you cause the seas to rise. As the seas to rise again, that puts New Orleans lower further below sea level. It means, and more, the, the other thing is that the continuation of storm surges, the one thing that they did do, they did put a gigantic plug and block up the um, Mr. Go, uh, the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet Hurricane Highway Canal. So now, by the way, it's useless as a canal. So it's like this billion-dollar nonsense project. Thank God they did stop it. But you're going to have more storm surges. You're going to have more destruction. And Von Heerden has told me, not only the city of New Orleans, that whole Gulf Coast is in such danger and people are going to die. People are going to drown. They haven't gotten a lot smarter about evacuation levies or anything because it's too expensive. The oil companies don't want to pay for the destruction that they caused. Is there a safe way to do deep water drilling or does it need to be banned forever? There's, you know, I've found that there's safe ways to do almost anything if you spend the money. I was also an investigator of uh, fraud and racketeering in the nuclear industry, for example, where, for example, uh, Fukushima, they said, oh, well, they couldn't have expected a, uh, an earthquake of that size. Actually, they did expect an earthquake of that size. It was in their documents. They supposedly prepared for it, and they hadn't because it's too expensive. And the nuclear plants... So you have a lot of dangerous nuclear plants, not because nuclear power is dangerous per se, but to make a safe nuclear plant, each plant would cost $100 billion to make it really safe. To do deep water drilling, there are safe ways to do it, but there are expensive ways to do it. You know, for a while, Brazil was doing deep water drilling, and they were very careful about their methods. You know, all these things are inherently dangerous. I mean, the best thing we can do is obviously stop using fossil fuels so we don't have to take a chance. We don't have to go double or nothing on our coastlines. Uh, the, the coastline of Alaska, for example, is still not recovered. When I, I flew back to Alaska 20 years after the oil spill, and I literally was able to pick up big gobs of oil from the Exxon Valdez 20 years later. And by the way, I wasn't guessing because it has a certain chemical uh, signature that's the Exxon Valdez oil. So we know it's still the Exxon Valdez oil. 20 years later, you know, I'm, I'm, and these scientists we have are saying, oh, 
Mother Nature takes care of itself. There's all these bugs and bacteria that eat the stuff up. That's such baloney. These guys, and, and by the way, when I say they're bought, they are really bought. Um, British Petroleum, you know, and so, and so the problem is you can't, it's very hard to drill in the Arctic. It's very hard to drill offshore. It's very hard to drill in these uh, difficult locations. And if you want to do it safely, you have to spend a ton of money. We just had the Arctic Wildlife Refuge open up and the Arctic drilling waters opened up. And, you know, Shell Oil dragging, trying to drag a, uh, a rig up to the Arctic, the rig uh, unhooked from the ship and just smashed into shoreline. These are the people that we then trust to start drilling in the Arctic. And if you have a blowout in the Arctic, if you do deep water drilling in the Arctic, and I was up there, the oil will go under the ice sheet and hit Norway. I mean, you have to understand that the Arctic, you know, it's just a big block of ice up there, right? Yeah. And you have oil, it's going to spread all over the planet. Oh, Lord. Um, so, and there's no way to clean it up. So all I'm telling you is that, can we do it? You know, I talked to a lot of these engineers. Yes. Will they do it? No. It's just too damn expensive to do it right, to do it clean. It's a lot less expensive to buy some politicians, buy yourself some politicians, buy yourself some environmental groups and cut all the corners and drill unsafely and, and uh, the public takes the chance. Yeah, and that was the subject of your one of your first documentaries, The Best Government Money Can Buy. <laughs> yeah, the Best Democracy Money Can Buy. And yeah, so I just did a... Uh, uh, an update of the best democracy money can buy commissioned by the Reverend Jesse Jackson this, uh, this year uh-huh. on how they could steal 20, how they, how Trump stole the 2016 election and how they could steal 2020. Cause it's very important. You can't take away people's livelihoods and their lives. You can't poison people. You can't do all these things unless you take away their vote because they will react just like new Orleans. If the black people were still there and could still vote, you would have an end to uh, the oilocracy of New Orleans and Louisiana. People won't tolerate having their lives destroyed, so you have to take away their vote in, in various ways. And obviously, in the case of New Orleans, don't let them back in the city. And by the way, I was charged by Homeland Security doing that investigation of New Orleans. I went up to their, what they called, with no sense of irony, Renaissance Village, where they had a thousand FEMA trailers of the victims who are not allowed to bring their trailers back into the city, even if they own land. You couldn't bring your trailer, for example, back and put it on your own property and start rebuilding. Why not? Because FEMA wouldn't let you, because you were a prisoner. You have to understand, these black people were effectively prisoners of a kind of racial and class war. They wouldn't let them out. You, you want your FEMA trailer? Uh, you can't go back to your uh, to your plot of land, right? So they kept them in, in Renaissance uh, Village. And by the way, if you ask the city and the state why they did that, they say, oh, we want to protect people from toxic, uh, you know, from we got to make sure that it's that there's no toxins on their property, et cetera. And, here, and what I did was when I went up there, I filmed the plume of toxic smoke covering the FEMA trailers coming from the nearby Exxon oil chemical cracking plant, which is the biggest, the, uh, the, the Baton Rouge uh, um, chemical cracking plant owned by Exxon is the biggest in the United States. 
and they put the FEMA trailers right next to this cancer machine. In fact, it's known by doctors, it's called Cancer Alley for a reason. That's where they put the people from New Orleans and these trailers in Cancer Alley. I was filming the cancer machine from about a quarter mile away, by the way, just so I could show the plume and the whole thing. And Exxon put in a complaint and Homeland Security uh, issued a warrant for my arrest because they said that I was filming, uh, I violated the uh, Patriot Act by filming national security property. It was that the Exxon chemical plant, the Exxon chemical plant is a national security asset which is protected by Homeland Security. So I couldn't take pictures, they said, because, you know, terrorists might then see that there's a big chemical plant there. And I, mean, I and I, Terrorists and I said, have access to Google Earth. They know where everything is. I, I said exactly that to this. Uh, so I got called by the FBI. Uh, and the, this FBI detective said, you know, um, this is very, uh, this is very, I said, you know, excuse me, but if terrorists want to get, know where that plant is, they look at Google Earth and they can get the exact coordinates of every single smokestack and pipe in that place on uh, Google Earth. And he said, oh, this isn't, you think this is funny. And I said, no, this isn't funny. He says, you know, there's real terrorists out there. People were killed on September 11th. I said, I know. I had an office in the World Trade Center on September 11th of 2001. And that's where my offices were. And uh, I said, yes, uh, people died. Why don't you go find the people that did it? instead of chasing me around at Exxon's request. Then at the time, there was the Air America Radio Network, so I immediately went on the Air America Radio Network and said, they're about to come and get me and throw in Guantanamo. <laughs> and so there's a lot of heat on Homeland Security and Exxon, and they backed off. But, you know, not many people have the protection of having a, a radio or TV network behind them. So I'm protected. But the people who are victims of, and by the way, you notice, and I want you to take notice, someone listening might say, hey, weren't you supposed to talk about New Orleans? You talk about New Orleans, then you talk about the Deepwater Horizon, then you talk about the Exxon Valdez, then you're talking about Fukushima nuclear plants. Yes, it's one topic, and vote theft. It's one topic, because it's really, you can't look at the deaths in New Orleans and the destruction of that city without understanding that is one political operation. You have oil companies and big finance against the rest of us. It is a type of what New Orleans was a, simply a front in the class war. No, I'm not a Marxist. I'm just telling you <laughs> that's too fancy for me. I'm just, a, I'm just a gumshoe investigator. But I'm telling you, it's us and them. It's the rich and their resources and it's us who, you know, they get the gold mine, we get the shaft. That's the real story of New Orleans. It was just one more case of it in which I went in to prove how it's done. And that's why, you know, and I try, and unlike other reporters, I go back and back and back to see what happens. People have forgotten about New Orleans. I bless this program. I bless, and I love your whole series, by the way, and you can Thank use you. that endorsement. This series is extraordinary because it's going back to what they want you to forget. And Americans, uh, you know, it's the United States of amnesia. We forget New Orleans. We forget Exxon Valdez. We forget Deepwater Horizon. You know, and so what's happening is because we keep forgetting, we keep repeating. And it's the same perps. Exactly. The same people. 
You know, I mean, and, and so I looked at, I was looking up um, Chevron, for example, and, and Exxon. They had removed, and this is officially, through permits, so it was legal, Exxon and Chevron together had removed 4 million square acres of Louisiana wetlands for their pipes and drilling. 4 oh, million. My God. And that's still going on today. And, and that's the other thing people have to understand. Climate change is, you know, we keep, people keep saying, oh, we have to protect our grandchildren and children. We have to protect our grandparents. This stuff is still is hitting us right now because you don't need to have the sea levels rise by 40 feet to drown a city, as you just saw in New Orleans. You just need an increase in the number and severity of storms. You just need a, that slight change is disastrous and deadly right now, right now. And so we have to, you know, the, the, the important thing is, is that we have to understand that there are people who make money off this. And that's the truth. You know, disasters are profit centers for a lot of operations. I mean, we have the melting ice caps. I was up in the Arctic. And you'll see this in my film, the long version of my film, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy where I'm up in the Arctic and I have a, the leader of the Eskimo, Etok, screaming at me in language I can't use here <laughs> because I, I come from British Petroleum, which is the British government. And uh, excuse me, I come from not British Petroleum. I come from BBC Television, which is British. Then you have BP, which is effectively kind of a British agency of the government. And so he screamed, BP is destroying us. They're drilling here. You know, and they love it because as the ice cap recedes, they now have 12 months a year open water on the Arctic Alaskan coast. Oh. Much of that coast now is not iced over up at uh, the Indian, uh, excuse me, the, um, the Eskimo Center, Koktovik, um, where, they are, where they got licensed to drill that whole coast now no longer has uh, ice coming in in winter. It's receded. Wow. The result is that these guys can now drill. They love it. So global warming is a profit center for the resource companies. They, they cause it and then they profit from it. And so as long as there's a profit to be had from disaster, and as long as disasters are not charged to the people that cause the damage. In other words, if the oil companies, as Dr. Von Heerden said, cause ultimately, or the ultimate malefactors causing the drowning of the city of New Orleans, they're not paying for that damage. They're not paying for that damage. The victims are paying for that damage. So then there's no incentive for them to not continue. Exactly. And, and of course, you know, we just had the passing of, uh, of David Koch. Oh, Yeah. And I was investigating them, too, back in 1995, uh -huh. if you can believe it. Uh, and I wrote an article for The Guardian called The Richest Guys You Never Heard Of. And this is before everyone started saying, naming the Cokes as the right-wing bet noir. Mm -hmm. But they were involved, again, in this kind of oil, you know, they were at the cutting edge of oil industry thievery. And I use that term very carefully and advisedly, because I, I don't have the lawyers that they do. They stole from a native tribe, right? 
That's right. That was a story that I uncovered in first report that they were stealing from the Osage um, Indians mm -hmm. of Oklahoma. They had a contract with the Osage to um, take the oil from their stripper wells. You know, these, you know, those little pump jacks that, you know, you see the horses bob up and down. Yeah. Those things might produce 20 barrels a month. That's it. Mm -hmm. And it's not worth running a pipe. So Coke Industries got a contract with the Indians to go pick up their oil from each of these little stripper wells. You had Indians living in, in uh, the Osage, living in mobile homes in the middle of Oklahoma, you know, just dust and nothing. And their royalties from that, you know, maybe they'll get 50 bucks a month. But for them, that was like, you know, that was the only cash they had. So this was a big deal. And the Koch brothers were simply taking the oil and they would take, uh, say, 20 barrels of oil from a stripper well in their truck. And the trucker was told by Charles Koch personally, Charles Koch personally, to take the oil, take more oil than you're marking down. So they marked down uh, 18 barrels instead of 20. And they were skimming, and it added up to hundreds of millions of dollars lost by the Native Americans and by the U.S. government, because that's also U.S. government property. They shared in the royalties. And there was an indictment that was, that was drawn up by the federal prosecutor of Kansas and Oklahoma against Charles Koch and against the company that was go to jail, a crime for stealing, theft of oil from an Indian reservation, a federal crime, and theft of oil from the U.S. Treasury, another crime. And he simply got, he bought the politicians. He, they owned Bob Dole. The, they gave $100,000 illegally to uh, Bob Dole. Bob Dole had to give it back, by the way. But in the meantime, he took $100,000 illegally from the Cokes. And then he got him and his uh, Senate buddy, Senator Nichols, to have the prosecutor fired by the federal government and replaced with a Coke Industries lawyer who immediately quashed the indictment. And even did something unusual, sent a note to the Cokes saying, you are not indicted. That <laughs> never something, you are not, you're, it's, just want you to know, you're not a criminal. Even if you think you are, don't worry. Here's your letter saying you are not going to jail. Get out of jail free. Now, why do I bring this up? That's way back, right? Now we're mm -hmm. back in, in stealing oil in the 80s by mm -hmm. the Cokes. Started there because... It's the question of impunity. When you said, do they have an incentive? They don't have an incentive to go straight because if you buy the cops, if you buy the government, if you buy the regulators, if you buy the prosecutors, if you get to name them, then you're home free. You, you have, there's no more control. And, you know, British Petroleum, you know, it's like, so again, you had the oil companies locked into the government, into the Bush administration. Obviously, oil is really close to the Bush administration. Last thing you're going to do is say, you know, you're destroying the wetlands and threatening New Orleans. And of course, these guys on top of everything else are saying, um, no, you know, uh, are cutting taxes. So there's no funding for your protection agencies and your regulatory agencies. And, you know, and they developed this whole thing that, that the government is, is your enemy where as opposed to the government is the extension of is your democratic voice and your democratic power to control those who have more money than votes. Exactly. So if you want follow-up, first of all, go to gregpalast.com, G-R-E-G-P-A-L-A-S-T, gregpalast.com. And there you can download for free. Do I have a foundation? You want to make a donation? I won't, I won't uh, say no. Um, but please download for free, Big Easy to Big Empty, The Untold Story of New Orleans. 
You can also see uh, that's a half hour version. It's a 16 minute version for Democracy Now, which you can you know find on YouTube. New Orleans, Greg Palace, Democracy Now. The other is the book Vulture's Picnic, which is my investigations in New Orleans, all over the place, from the Arctic to New Orleans to um, Azerbaijan and, and beyond. And uh, that also gives you further uh, bits of the story. And uh, so I, I'm staying, in other words, I keep staying on it. I, I don't drop it. Oh, yeah, I've noticed that. And uh, I didn't know about the update to the best democracy money can buy, but I'm going to watch that tonight. <laughs> yes, and that's uh, just been updated. There's, that's a shorter version, friendly for schools and churches, because we took out the uh, swearing Eskimo. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, he's not Inuit. Uh, he'd be very upset. Uh, he just passed away. He was the leader of the Eskimo. He said, Inuit is a language. Eskimo is who we are. Uh, and um, so... Uh, it, but these are, you know, it's an extraordinary story. So if you get the longer version, you get your Eskimo. And if you get the shorter version, uh, it gives you the impact of how the uh, elections get mucked with. But I make a very important point in the film, and this is the important point. Is It's called The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. And it's based on my book, also Billionaires and Ballot Bandits, because it's not just about stealing votes. I name the, the, the billionaires and others who are behind this vote theft because the Kochs actually are not Republicans. People often have that wrong. They're not Republicans. Uh, David was a, a libertarian. He didn't like the Republican Party. They don't particularly like Trump. It doesn't matter to them. It's all about the money, that they have control over the regulatory agencies, that they destroy the regulatory agencies or simply capture them. And, and it's the other billionaires and it's the big oil companies and the tremendous power they have, not all the power, because one, I'm going to tell you something, you know, the public does win. We still have more votes than they have money in the end. If we vote and we stay active, and um, that's very, very important. You know, it's, it's not a, a tale of, of endless woe and, and destruction, and, and they're too powerful for us to take on. That's, that's, a, that's a ridiculous story. You know, um, one of the reasons I bother and one of the reasons I'm talking to you is that People get the information, they get upset, they, they vote, they take action, they join organizations, and I think that that's, uh, and we win. We do have, we, you know, we did win an environmental protection agency. It might not protect us or environment as much as we want right now, but it, uh, we do have these agencies which were created by public demand. Absolutely. I, I agree. It's like not the time to be despondent. It's the time to be very active. Yes, and I think people are waking up again. It goes in waves. And so I'm very happy to be on this program because, again, we forget New Orleans. And that's dangerous for all of us because it gave us lessons of what happens when oil industry, big finance, and politicians who are for sale get together and what happens to us. And that story continues on. And it will. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for joining us and have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show. 